I'd like to invite you to join me in your copy of God's Word in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to be, uh, the passage we're going to be exploring today is uh, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And just as a little background, uh, Jesus has just taken... um, Peter, James, and John, who kind of were the first set of disciples, like they were like the most inner core, inner group of disciples. You know, Jesus, we know he had the 12, and then some people don't know, there were also the 70. You know, there was a, there's a mention of there were a group of 70 disciples who were all, you know, they weren't all just the 12, but there was a larger group called the 70 Um, And then there was, you know, just the bigger masses of disciples. But even within the 12, Peter, James, and John, and they're always listed first in the list of disciples. And they're kind of the inner core. And, um, you know, what I take from that is, you know, when you're ministering to different people, sometimes you, you, we try to love everybody and bless everybody, but it is inevitable that you will have more influence on some people than others, and you can't feel bad about that. That's just part of life. You will be closer and you will have more influence. You will rub up more closely again. Well, not nowadays, we won't, right? But uh, you will get closer to some people than, than others, okay? Um, that reminds me, last week when I was preaching... I got word this week, and I love this, that people are watching very closely um, and listening to the message. Well, I don't know about you adults, but I know uh, that some of our kids really are because I got a message this week when I was preaching, and I was talking about that we can touch people. And Rhett looked at Courtney as they were watching at home, said, oh, no, no, we can't, can we, Mama? We can't touch people right now. So I was like, good job. He's listening to that whole social distancing thing. He realized we can't touch people. And so you're so right, Rhett, not literally touch them. But what I meant was that we can encourage people. And so we need to do that, all right? So anyway, they had been his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, had been with Jesus on the mountain. And so I I needed to let you know that because the first verse we're going to read doesn't really make sense if you don't realize where the four of them, Jesus with Peter, James, and John, they had kind of been separate. So if you would please stand with me as we begin reading. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, And the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. 
He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help him. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help, over, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. Let's go to the Lord. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for reminding us of what we need. Thank you for reminding us that um, the Christian life is challenging, surprising. It's never stale. We can't expect what's coming next. And therefore, Lord, we have to hold tightly to you. We have to stay connected to you so that we can face Whatever comes our way, Lord, help us to be people of faith. Father, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The thing about mountaintop experiences is you always come down to the valleys. Unless you choose to be a monk and sit on top of the hill and, you know, hum all day or whatever it is those folks do at the top of the hills with their arms and legs crossed. We all love mountaintop experiences, and Peter, James, and John had certainly had one. That was the hill of transfiguration. That was the place where they saw Moses and Elijah, that's where they saw the glory of Jesus revealed and he shone brightly and, and they worshipped him. They'd seen this incredible thing and, and just this amazing experience. And I mean, most of it was just unbelievably great. Now, they were a little bit bugged and so on the way down, Mark records that they're kind of trying to figure out Jesus said some crazy stuff about after I die and all, you know, but Jesus was always saying crazy stuff like, you know, you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, you know, it was just more of that, what did Jesus mean this time kind of thing? And they'd had some conversations about, oh, that Jesus, you know, what's he mean this time? He, he's always saying stuff that we don't quite get. But other than that, I mean, it was just great. They'd come down this mountain and they get to the bottom and they see the other disciples, 
you know, and they've been on this mountaintop experience, and they get down, and there's an absolute uproar. Have you ever kind of had that type thing where you've been up here? I, if it was a retreat, a revival, or just a special renewal time in the Lord, and, and you're just looking to glide on forward in this wonderful walk with the Lord, and boom, the reality of life hits you full on, and, and all of a sudden, the peace and, and the tranquility of this mountaintop experience is, is gone. And they walk into total chaos. Here in the streets, a large crowd has gathered, and, and there's this great hoopla going on, this big argument, and all the teachers of the law, the scribes, are verbally assaulting the disciples And you better believe that everybody, including those other disciples, is excited to see Jesus show up. Maybe not the scribes, but everybody else is. And the crowd runs toward them when they say, oh, here's the main guy and his three main disciples. Apparently, these guys aren't quite as good because they couldn't cast out the demon. I mean, I'd heard that they had been before, supposedly, but they couldn't do this one. And they had been before. Jesus, by this point, had already commissioned the 12 disciples. And he'd sent them out to not only to preach and to teach, but to do miracles, including casting out demons. That had been part of the job description. He told them how it was done. He'd given them the power. He'd instructed them to do things in Jesus' name. And and they'd been successfully doing it. And... So here they are bewildered, as as well, I'm sure, some of the many other disciples. Why can't they do this now? What's going on? But Jesus shows up, and okay, things are going to get better. Jesus shows up, and everybody rushes towards him, and he says, what's going on here? What's all this about? And a man from the crowd pipes up. Hey, hey, I can tell you what's going on. It's, this is about my family. I brought my son to have him healed. I heard your disciples were here. And they couldn't do anything about it. And so he gives this explanation. And Jesus starts to talk to this man to get some more details. And, and he asks him some questions about, well, how long... Has he been this way? Well, they, he says, bring the boy. And the, they bring him, and the, he goes into this convulsion, and he says, how long has he been this way? Well, since he was a young child. And, and he's thrown him into the fire and into the water and tried to kill him, and, and we've done everything we can. And he, he ends up just kind of going beyond the explanation to say, please, Jesus, if you can do anything for him, please do it. And Jesus is, if I can do anything for him? If I can do anything for him? And he quickly steps back and says, Lord, I believe. He knows he's messed up. He knows he's put his foot in his mouth. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. If there's ever a phrase in the Bible that resonates with me is that one right there. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It sounds 
like a great contradiction. And yet, no less a theologian than, than uh, John Calvin said that that is true of every single one of us. That no matter how much faith we have, we all have those pockets of unbelief, those doubts, those failings, those falterings. If we're honest with ourselves, all of us have those places where we don't believe enough. But here's the thing. This man has that mustard seed faith. It's not big, but it's there. And he asked Jesus for more. Jesus, I believe and I confess where I have my unbelief and I'm throwing myself on your mercy. And by the way, the Bible says this man didn't just kind of say, Jesus, help me. The Bible says he shouted it out. He exclaimed it. He proclaimed it. And there was already a crowd, but more people hear him. I mean, we talk about crying out to the Lord. He literally cried out to him. And even more people start rushing to the scene. And here's the thing about Jesus. As much as he did things often with crowds around, he never did tricks just to show off. He wasn't there uh, just to perform for the public. And the Bible says he sees these crowds running and, and before the rest of them get there, he's not doing this for a show. He's like, I'm going to go ahead and take care of this. And so he casts this demon out, this deaf and mute demon, and he says, leave. And then he says, and enter him no more. Not just go on a little vacation. Not just be better for a little while. You are to leave and to never enter him again. And apparently, from what Jesus says later, and we'll talk about it, Apparently, I, I don't know what the ranks of demons are, but apparently this was no run-of-the-mill demon. This wasn't some average, ordinary one, because Jesus later on talks about this kind, like this one was especially big, bad one. And, and anyway, this one shrieked. It had to obey the, Jesus and his word and his command, but boy, it was fighting it. And he shrieked and convulsed, and, and when he finally came out, everybody thought the little boy was dead. I mean, he looked like he was dead, so much that the whole crowd said, he's dead. Jesus said no. And he talk, it talks about that he lifted and raised him up. And while it does not say that this was a resurrection account, the wordage is exactly the same terms that are used in other places where Jesus does resurrect people. He raises him up. And he is healed. And the scene changes, and the disciples get back to a private place with Jesus indoors. And they question Jesus, and they say, why couldn't we do that? And he says, this kind only comes out uh, through much prayer. You see, they had learned the techniques they had learned the proper ritual, so to speak. They, they had gone through all the motions. They had done what they were supposed to do. And it had been working. It had been going along just fine. Other places, they had cast out demons with no problems. But here it didn't work. And Jesus is saying... This one was going to actually take a really strong connection with God. And while I had been away 
on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, you had neglected connecting with the Father. You had neglected the relationship with God. And so you were still doing the same ritual and routine. You were still saying in Jesus' name. You were following the formula. You were doing all the stuff just like you'd been taught. But it was a ritual without relationship. And the power of God was not at work. And that's why it didn't work. Because it was never about following a ritual. It was always about the power of God working in your life. And we can often forget that. You see, we tend to think somehow that as we grow as Christians, that our life is going to get easier. That, oh, we've got more knowledge. We've been a believer longer. And and we've learned how to have a quiet time. And we've learned our church routines and our giving routines. And and we've got more knowledge. and, And somehow we think that we've somehow got this Christian thing down to a routine. And that's what our religion becomes a routine. And it becomes religion rather than relationship. And the disciples had put their faith not in God, but in a routine. And that routine failed them because routines do not have power. God has power. Any routine you have... A quiet time, a a prayer time, a Bible reading, a giving, church going. Those are powerful routines if they are meant to further our relationship with God. But we do not put our trust in our faith in routines. We put our faith in God. And we always have to realize that rituals and routines and religious practices are not bad as long as we do not put our faith in them, as long as we recognize that they are tools that allow us to grow in faith with God. And we got to understand that difference. Look, even pastors, or probably especially pastors, can fall to this. You know, one of my... um, pastor friends I I respect so much we pastored in the same town years ago and he's a few years older than me he'd been a carpenter um, a full-time carpenter for several years before he answered the call to ministry and he went back to seminary he went and got his doctorate degree he's an awesome guy his name's Frankie Clark and and Frankie would tell me he would talk about when he was working on his his sermon prep and his stuff as a pastor he'd say I work on my craft now I love that Because he took the same mentality. He was a very talented carpenter. And he worked on that craft. And he got better and better and better at that craft of carpentry. Well, then when he went into the ministry, he took that same values. And he got better and better and better at the craft of preaching and visiting and leading and all these things. And and like I said, he's a few years older than me. And I said, I want that mentality. I don't want to just be settled with a seminary degree. I don't want to stop learning and say, well, that's it. I'm never going to learn anymore. I want to work on my craft. And that is good and honorable to a certain point. But the problem is what me and any other preacher in the world can do is that we can get good at our craft and forget about our relationship with God. And we can have skills that we develop And forget that without the power of God, skills mean nothing. And so all of us as Christians have to remember, routines are only as good 
as how much they help us get closer to the heart of God. All right, so that's the big story. Now, I want us to talk real quickly about this dad in particular. How this dad is an example to all of us. The man is not, uh, not named. He's just the father, the boy's father. That's, that's all we know. So here's the boy's father. What does he do that's an example to all of us? Not just to dads, but to all of us. First of all, he focuses on what really matters. The father focuses on what really matters. I love that this man, he was doing whatever it took to see that his son got help. He was focused. He was absolutely engaged in doing everything he could for his son. There, there are so many people out there, and in particular so many men, who see their family life as kind of a side thing and their career as the main thing. <laughs> and they don't understand the most important things in life are the relationships that God has given them, the ministry that God has given them. And folks, the ministry that you have begins with the closest relationships you have. All right, if everybody in the, in the country, everybody in the world, everybody in the community, everybody in the church thinks that you're a wonderful person, but you treat those closest to you like dirt, you've failed. Like the old saying, charity begins at home, ministry begins at home. All of us are called to love one another deeply, and that calling first begins with those closest to us. And that is where we are most likely to throw it out the window. We're most likely to say, well, I'll be kind to so-and-so because I can keep it up for a minute. You know, I can see them and smile for the half of the second that I see them. I I'm not telling you to pretend. That's part of our problem is we're so used to pretending for this amount of time and that amount of time that we see other people. I'm saying that we allow God to work on us so that he really changes and transforms us. And that is seen from the inside out. The most important thing that you can do in, for your Christian witness is to work on your family life. So that if people were to peer behind what everybody can see, if they were to take a sneak peek, they would say, wow, they really are what they say they are. We have a problem in this world with men, not all men, but a certain percentage who are unengaged at home. They're unengaged as husbands and as dads. And so the fact that this guy was in fully engaged, he was fully focused 
on doing what he needed to do for his son is an example for us to understand that the most important things in life need to be our highest priorities. We've got to say, you know, hey, I'm going to do what's most important. I've heard it said many times, what you prioritize is what you do. If I say, what do you care about most? What you say to me, what you answer is not the real answer. It's what you put the efforts in your life towards is the real answer. Because that's what you've prioritized in your life. And so to be like this dad is to focus on the things that really matter. The second thing about this dad, how he's an example to us all, is he was humble enough to ask for help. He was humble enough to ask for help. It's an interesting thing. Um, Think about how many times that you've heard phrases like, be a man, act like a man, man up. You don't hear those things. You don't ever hear, be a woman, act like a woman, woman up. Have you ever heard? No, you don't hear those things. You know, I mean, we just know when a woman is a woman, she's a woman. But somehow, well, I don't know these days. But anyway, mostly we do. But somehow, for men, it's like you're a boy and then you're a man. Maybe if society recognizes it, if you prove it, if you show that you're manly enough or whatever, And we've got this crazy society, and so often these ideas for young boys coming up is that i got to act like I'm a tough guy. i got to act like I know it all already, like I don't need anybody, because otherwise they might not think I'm a man. And it's ridiculous, because all of us need to learn, all of us need to grow. All of us need to continue our journey. That's part of being a man is learning more from our heavenly father and from the the other mentors and models that he's put in our place. The idea of discipleship like Paul and Timothy and Paul and Barnabas and learning as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That is so biblical that we keep on learning in life, whoever we are. But this idea and culture of, well, i got to pretend like I already know it all. And it robs men of the growth that God has for them. It, it robs them from being able to be all they could be. And, and so we live in a world, because of all this crazy views, it's scary. <clears throat> I, I remember when Caleb was born. You know, I'd been the, I'd been the supportive you know, dad-to-be all along and everything. I mean, I'd felt the stomach. I'd went along to the bookstore to pick up the what to expect when you're expecting. I, you know, I'd gone to the <laughs> breathing classes. You know, I'd done all the stuff. But, but really, that little thing, he was, he was up in his mommy's tummy, okay? I mean, I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of in a support role. But I, I remember when he's born... And they hand, me, they hand me these things and say, do you want to cut the cord? And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm like, this 
closest thing I've ever seen. This looks kind of like squid, you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and I'm not only I'm thinking that, but the other thing I'm thinking, I'm like, this is the last connection to his mother. And now this is half mine. When I cut this, it's on me, at least half, you know. And that is a scary moment because we all know that the world may sell you a million books on how to be a parent, but there's really no book. There's the good book that tells us a lot of great principles, but still, it's scary. And on top of it being scary and us needing all the help we can get, we live in a world that tells men, now act like you know it all and don't ask any questions from anybody because you're a man. Isn't that crazy? And this man was man enough and loved his son enough to ask for help. He was man enough to say, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care if you know, what they call me, what they say about me. I am desperate to get help for my son. Who gives a rip? All I know is I love my son. He's hurting, and I want to get him help. And so he was humble enough to ask for help. Finally, third thing about this guy is that he trusted Jesus with the thing that was most valuable to him. He trusted Jesus with the thing that was most valuable to him. He comes and asks for help. The disciples can't really give him help. Jesus shows up. I mean, the man, I think at this point, he's, he's probably pretty disillusioned because he's thought, okay, I hear there are these people that Mike can help, and he shows up, and they don't help. And in fact, just this big, almost riot-like condition breaks out where the scribes and the Pharisees are all yelling and fussing and just with the other disciples and a huge crowd, and there's anger, and he's thinking, whatever happened, nobody even cares about my son. They're just hurtling arguments and insults back and forth with one another. And I want you to stop and think about where do you think his faith was right that minute? Because Jesus, you know, gets him on the gotcha thing, right? We, we know that, okay? Because he ends up saying, Jesus, if you can do anything. And Jesus says, if I can do anything? But why did the man say, if? Because he'd been let down. Because he put his trust in these disciples, and they hadn't come through for him. And let's be for real. A lot of us have trust issues with God. Not because God let us down, but because someone else let us down. Someone that we really trusted in. And because they let us down, and we trusted them... We don't know if we can trust God, and we have a hard time with it. Being a minister for the time I've been, I can't tell you how many times I've come across people who say, yeah, I used to believe in God, or I believe, but I don't go to church anymore because of that pastor, what he did back then. 
that youth director, what they said about me, that deacon, that choir member, whatever. Sometimes it was gossip. Sometimes it was even abuse. Sometimes just couldn't get along. But I have heard story after story after story of people who aren't right with God and don't trust God because someone else that they trusted, a believer in Jesus Christ, or at least someone who proclaimed that they were a believer in Jesus Christ, let them down and hurt them. And so now they don't believe in God, or they're not so sure if they do anymore. There's some doubts there. There's some struggles there. And maybe somebody here today or somebody who's watching out there today, maybe that's you. And I don't want to take away a single bit of your hurt, the legitimacy of what might have happened to you somewhere once upon a time. I'm going to tell you, being hurt in the church hurts worse than anywhere else. It really does. Because you expect, I know we all make fun of the whole safe place stuff that, you know, everybody's supposed to have a safe place in the society. But, but literally long before safe place talk was ever around, we've all considered church a safe place. Oh, I know in, at, at work. I know in business. I know out there in the world that's cutthroat. I expect those people to try to eat my lunch. I expect them to, to come after me. I expect them, the dealing with the general public, to, them to be rude and angry and whatever. But we come into a house of worship. We come into a, to a home group or a Sunday school room, and, and we expect to not have that. And so when things don't live up to our expectations, it's crushing. Do you want to know, I almost quit ministry in the very first church I served, and it's not a bad church at all. In fact, it's a great church. But I was so naive. Wow, was I naive. And I just realized we're all sinners saved by grace. Emphasis on sinners. We, we all mess up. We all offend. We all hurt. And so I don't want to take away from anything that's ever happened to you, but I want to say that that person failing you or that group of people failing you is not God failing you. Those disciples failing that man and not bringing, casting the demon out of that boy, that was not God failing that boy. That was their lack of faith. That was their not being right with him. And so I want you to remember that. And if someone else hurting you has kept you away from God, maybe reconsider and go straight to the source and ask him to help you heal those wounds. But let's get back to this father. He trusted Jesus with the one thing that was most valuable to him. If you're not a parent, you, you may 
have a hard time with this. But once you've become a parent, you will understand if you become a parent. There's just nothing to compare. Um, just take the instance of forgiveness. If you doubt it for a second, let someone insult you. Let them make that same insult to your child. <laughs> Which one are you going to forgive first? We all know. We can say, oh, that's old so-and-so. They just say stupid stuff like that all the time. They put their foot in their mouth. I'm just not going to worry about it. What did they say to my, oh, uh -uh. <laughs> you know? no, no, no. They're not going to say that to my baby and get away with it. Those of us who have children, it is, it's our most precious possession. I read the most incredibly tragic article yesterday about a young man, a 20-year-old boy. And he had gotten into these stock trading apps. And they're becoming very popular now where they have, like, reduced all the fees. And I'm not even sure how they make money off of these things. But, like, people who could only once do this type of trading through professionals, now they could do it on their own on these apps. And this kid was starting to make money and doing lots of stuff on these apps. And somehow he made a transaction with a lot of stuff, and he was doing good. And the app ends up telling him, you owe $700,000. And he can't take it. And he takes his life. And his parents find him and they find the phone. And what's sad is he didn't owe $700,000. The debits and the credits just didn't come in at the same time. He didn't even owe all that money. There was a glitch, and it just didn't come in together. But this boy, this 20-year-old boy, he had to have thought, I've ruined myself. I've ruined my family. I've ruined my life. I can't go on. And I'm thinking, as the father of a 20-year-old son... How that dad must have thought, oh, son, 700000 is nothing. We'll mortgage the house. We'll declare bankruptcy. We'll, we'll run to Ecuador. We'll do whatever we have to do. It doesn't matter. 700000 is nothing compared to what you're worth. And so when I think about this dad, after the disciples had already let him down, and Jesus looked at him and said, if? And he could have been a smart aleck. He could have said, well, give me a break, Jesus. He just said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He threw it all. On Jesus. I'm not defending myself. 
I'm not saying I'm worthy. I know I've messed up. I know I've failed. But God, everything, the most important thing in my life, my son, he's yours because you are my only hope for him. I believe. And I go back to the story of Abraham as he took his son Isaac up on that hill. And God has called every single one of us to say, what is most important to me? What is most important to you in your life? Are you willing to give everything to me? Are you willing to trust me with even with the blessings that I, in fact, gave you? Are you willing to trust me enough to hand them back to me? Are you willing to trust me enough to say that I love you and I have a good plan for your life and that I'm in control and just trust me, whatever may come, are you willing to trust me? And that's what this boy's father did. He trusted. And so an earthly father learned to trust the son, the son of God. And all of us have to learn to follow his example. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are indeed a good, good father. I'll never understand the sacrifice of your son on the cross. I can try. I can never fully comprehend it. But I know that it means that your love for me, that question is forever settled because of what you have done for all of us on the cross. And that I don't ever have to doubt. And I don't ever have to question. No matter what comes my way, what hardships, what trials, what failures, what fears... God, you love me. And you are working according to your purposes. Everything, the ups, the downs, the in-betweens. You're working it all for my good. And for your glory. I pray that you'd help me to not fall into a religious routine and to the trap of simply following rituals rather than seeking a daily and even a moment-by-moment relationship with you. God, where I cling to you, where I'm humble enough to get off of my pride and my arrogance and to confess my sins and my faults and my failures and my fears to you, and, Father, to lean on you and my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And Father, so that through your weakness, I mean my weakness, Lord, that your strength may be shown and your name may be glorified. And may that same thing be true of every person in this place and everyone who hears the sound of my voice. God, may your name be glorified as we humble ourselves and as we call out with abandon, unashamedly, humbly, call out in faith, just as his father did. May we do the same today. Lord, we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.